It's his latest book, and his third. Former Garda Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien joins me this evening to talk about it. The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem takes a three-pronged look at how the Northern Troubles have had an impact on the Republic. Well, filling senior positions in Argarda Shiakana, or attempting to fill them, is a topical subject at present. And John O'Brien, who retired from the Gardaí in 2006, has an issue with these positions being filled by people who have had no experience of policing in the Republic. And he deals with it in his book extensively in a chapter entitled Diluting the Blue. you how you felt when the appointment of Drew Harris was announced? Well, John, I looked at it in two perspectives. And because I have been speaking about this since 2018, really, and it's often perceived, uh, you know, in, in, in what I would call a lazy commentary that O'Brien doesn't like Drew Harris. I'm very conversant with the sacrifice that Drew Harris's family experienced when his father was murdered by the provisional IRA in a car bomb. Uh, in a booby trap attached to the family car and his mother was in the same car. I fully understand that. But there's some basic fundamental one objection that I had, and it would relate to anybody, and that is nowhere in the European Union or in civilised democracies is the head of a security service or a policing service from a neighbouring country appointed to the head of the adjoining country. It just simply doesn't happen. There is no precedent for it. The equivalent, John, would be would be appointing a British general, uh, chief of staff of the Irish Army. That's the so. There's a basic fundamental uh, objection to that. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be cooperation, understanding, ex- all of the good police exchanges. Of course not, but it simply doesn't ha- happen. And by the way, the Department of Justice conducted a survey before that appointment was made of the European colleagues, and the universal response was to that question: Would you appoint somebody from that position to your country? The universal answer was no. So that's a universal uh, truth, John. You know, so there's not it's not a personal thing. The second thing. That was a real difficulty and remains a difficulty. And we haven't time to break it down into the nuts and bolts. Was the evidence that he gave to the Smithy Tribunal in 2013, uh, the one that alleged collusion by guards based in Dundalk in the murder of Harry Breen and Bob Buchanan? They are the two RUC officers that were murdered in March of 1989. They are the two fundamental reasons why I objected, not on the personal front. I would shake the man's hand and I would say, I respect what happened to your family. I respect your contribution to the British system as a British police officer, but no thanks. What you're saying is that policing in the north of Ireland is completely different to policing in the south, even though some might say all that's there is a dividing line or border between us. It's the same country. Ah, yeah, it is fundamentally different. And of course, there are political differences as well, John, between both jurisdictions, British and Irish. The classic example, if we just be really quick with this one is, Tom Oliver was a county loud farmer that was uh, murdered in 1991 by the, the provisional IRA. And when Drew Harris spoke about that to the Smithy Tribunal, he said, he was asked, do you have information about this that you can, that would be useful to the Garda Shikana? He was an assistant or a deputy chief constable in the, in the PSNI at, at that stage. And he said, yes, I have. And we will make it available to the guards because it is their crime. Yeah. So just being very clear, John, he was saying then in 2013, it is a Garda crime to investigate. 
Subsequently, when he was appointed commissioner, he was at a justice um, committee meeting. That's the Dáil Committee. It's a, a standing committee of the Dáil or of the directors. And he was asked the same question by a TD from County Loud. And he said, that information is, is the property of the chief constable of the PSNI, and it's up to him to act on it. Now, so you have two things here. You now have the man who's in charge of the guards saying the information relative to the mother of Tom Oliver in 2013 was a matter for the guards. Now he's head of the guards and is saying it's a matter for the chief constable of the PSNI. They are basic contradictions. It speaks to a conflict of interest. You can't hermetically seal your brain to the northern half of his brain and to the southern half. You know, and in the position he occupies, that's all the more, uh, you know, all the more uh, relevant. On December 16th next, now almost 40 years ago exactly, and after 23 days in captivity, the kidnapping of supermarket executive Don Tidy came to an end. He'd been kidnapped by the provisional IRA, posing as guardee 23 days earlier. In Dorada Wood, outside Ballinamore in County Leitrim, Don Tidy was rescued by guardee. While on one hand, the exercise itself was successful in the sense that Tidy walked free relatively unharmed. But the day itself was tragic. Gary Sheehan, a trainee Garda, and a young soldier, Private Patrick Kelly, were shot dead during the rescue. John O'Brien has two main issues with how that rescue was carried out. point I wanted to make, and I made it already, but I want to underline it, is that event, the people who were involved in, in that were former or were members of the provisional IRA who had escaped from the Mays prison in the north. And they had become, for want of a better word, an active service unit in the south. And they had embarked on that attack in a way to raise funds and money for the IRA. That was what they were for. Two things. One, the, the strategy of using unarmed recruits in that particular search operation was not the correct one to take, and I'm using diplomatic language here. And it is amazing that we hadn't learned that dealing with armed criminals, that it needed a different, uh, more strategic uh, um, approach to deal with that. Plus the fact that nobody has ever been convicted of those murders is not a badge of honor in terms of the state's response to it. And a failure to name the people involved as people of interest at that particular time, John, was a serious strategic mistake as well. It leaves a very sour taste in the mouth. And because the anniversary is due very shortly, uh, like the 16th of December, it is appropriate to underline the significance of, of that event. But also, more importantly, I think, John, is to learn from it and to understand what happened then and not to repeat those uh, mistakes, but to recognize that recruit Gandhi were not the appropriate uniform presence to be there in Bandamore on that event. Something I meant to touch on on the, the programme last week, and we didn't get around to it, and that is safety for the public on the streets, that they can walk the streets at any time and feel safe. Now, that's not the case at the moment because we've had a lot of unprovoked assaults. We've had people who have been killed as a result, and we've people who've had life-changing injuries. And of course, when something like this happens, the instant reaction is always more guardy in the street. Is that the solution to the problem, or is it part of the solution? 
Well, it's a fundamental rule of policing, John, is if the police lose control of the street, and when I use the word street here, I mean streets, roads, towns, countries, townlands, then they slowly begin to lose control of the whole law and order situation in the country. And that is our historical experience, by the way. That is the historical experience of this republic is that when the police, that when the people that police the country lose control of the streets, then eventually the whole fabric of criminal justice begins to crumble. Now, in very simple terms, we're talking about uniform policing visibility. That's the key thing. We need to have colleagues on the street and appropriately um, mandated to do their job. Now, that visibility is a product of two things. One is numbers, you know, the number of officers you have at your disposal, and two is how you organize them. And the difficulty with the current situation is, yes, there is a major problem with numbers, although there are many thousands of Gardaí. There's a major problem with numbers, and that's exemplified by what I referred to already, John, the retention and recruitment crisis. And the second part of that equation is organization. And the organization is the one, I think you asked me, uh, you know, earlier on about what I thought about, uh, you know, the the strategies being employed. And the policing model that was introduced by Commissioner Harris in 2019 is a disaster because it has broken up the structure of the organization in a way that is not efficient, not productive, and it makes it even harder to produce a uniform visibility on the streets. But again, let me just conclude by saying that for all police forces worldwide, when one loses control of the public space, then one loses confidence, loses the community confidence, and the organization loses confidence in itself to, to, uh, to, to, to achieve what is the protection and life is the most important singular duty. And there are major issues. And those two things contributed, numbers, John, and how you organize your colleagues. Because you can't actually have a Garda on every street corner in every town and every city in the country. No, you can't have. And that's why you need to be skillful. You know, you need to be flexible. I mentioned the flexibility issue, I think, earlier on when we were talking about road safety and so on. So one of the experiences that I know from my own personal experience as a humble sergeant in, in, in North Dublin was I was the head of a task force with about 20 or 30 uh, colleagues. And we had the opportunity to take on a particular area, focus on the street disorder, but also on, on crime. And we operated both in uniform and in plain clothes. And I did the same thing when I was the the divisional chief superintendent of the Loudmead Garda Division, I created a unit. Now, the idea of that unit was we could move it around from town to town or area to area as as, as the needs be, because the point you made, John, is just 100% accurate. You cannot have a police officer on the corner of every street, road or boring. That just can't happen. But then you need to be flexible with your resources and you go... You move them around a small number. You have to have a cohort that provide the framework service, but you need to have a small active cohort to move around on a needs basis. And it's not a perfect solution, but it is much better than just trying to implement a totally unworkable operating model that doesn't recognize the need for fast, good, uniform visibility. Another concerning aspect of these unprovoked assaults is the age bracket of some of the assailants. Quite a number of serious assaults carried out in Dublin recently were committed by young people in their early teens. Correct, yeah, and, and uh, again, crime and criminal actions from, from, from people in that age bracket is nothing, uh, is nothing new. But there is, I think, uh, very evidently a great contempt for both the system and for the guards from many of these, of these young people. And, and that is a tough nut to crack, if you pardon the pun. Of course, the criminal justice system, as in the courts and detention, and also diversion programs and so on, are a, a, are a very important part of that. 
But there's one thing that is extraordinarily important, and this is where experience and gather experience comes in, is if I'm working in a particular area, inner city Dublin, outer city Dublin, Cork, whatever it is, I need to have guards who know who those individuals are. And we have to be, and that's from a good community policing perspective, as this thing from just simply, you know, catch them, lock them up and throw away the key. You need to you need to know them and they need to know you. You need to know their families. You need to be in contact with them. And we've had many, many colleagues who down through the years fulfill that road admirably. And that's a slow bill. That is not something you can snap your fingers at. It's not something that's necessarily amenable to fast the fancy press releases. But you need people who have that vocational sense of how important it is. You make the context. John, it will never Never be perfect. It will never eliminate all of the difficulties that arise. But the one thing it makes sure that in any superintendent's area, in any district, we will know where the problems are and we will sensibly deal with them and we'll also interact with the other state bodies that have distinct responsibility in that area from a social perspective. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because it's been made here locally on many occasions back in the 80s, the 90s. Most of the guards stationed here were from Kerry. They were all living in the town. They knew everybody exactly what you've just been speaking about. They knew their families, they knew the people, they knew where they lived, etc. Now, not just Bandon, but I suppose in all areas, you have men and women joining the Garda Shikana, but who want to live in cities and do not live in the town that they're based in. Yeah, and there are economic factors at play, but there was always economic factors at play. Even when I was a young guard, in terms of putting the pound shillings and pence together, that got you you started. And you have to understand that. But the fundamental problem I see now is that very, very many of the people who significantly lead us now, or when I say us, I guess I should regress and say it's the current guys you call it, do not have any understanding or experience of what I just described to you a few minutes ago, John. They don't understand that. Uh, you know, they may spout the press release and the, you know, the suitable kind of psychobabble about the situation, but they don't understand that fundamental person-to-person contact that was possible between the guards and and the community. And of course, there are strategies that one employs to uh, to overcome that. For instance, when I was a young guard, you would not be allowed serving your own uh, in your own town or city, and that applied to Cork. And the only place, the exception thing, then was uh, Dublin. So there are many reasons, but to understand exactly what you just described, John, there is we have to take into account the economic factors involved. And so on. Very quickly, once upon a time, and it sounds like, you know, an old tale, in the large cities we had, when a young recruit joined, they had accommodation in the stations. And it gave them the the start. It gave them the start where they could acquire a few bob. They were also available for duty in that locality. And then they branched out and bought their houses and moved on. You know, so lots of uh, that. This is one, I think I said to you, John, that one of the things that, and in the course of the book, is the forgetfulness that people have of the good historic experience. It's like trying to discover everything for the first time and, uh, you know, not really understanding the fundamentals of basic community policing. And that's the end of part two of Where the Road Takes Me. Part three coming right up after the break.